Yeah. Your audio is coming through your uh, computer instead of your microphone. Oh, no. <laughs> How about that? There we go. There it is. Ah, how are we doing? <laughs> Pretty good. How are you? <laughs> oh, no. Um, let's just jump right in. Sure. To super duperstitious, the paranormal podcast about the science behind the spooky and strange. I'm Jake, and I am Wyatt. Welcome back again to another episode, or to your first, if it's your first time. Yes. This is where we talk about strange things. We try and break it down with science. And uh, we got an impromptu prompt at the end of last episode from our own uh, dear yes. Mr. Dr. Shell here. What was it? Yes. Food-based thing. <laughs> last time we finished up our loosely winter-themed episode pair. Uh, also, by the way, Jake, the movie I was thinking of was Sphere, Not the Abyss. Oh, okay. This time, our topic, which indeed was the product of, let us call it, free association, <laughs> is food-based thing uh also just to get out ahead of it this will not be an andrew zimmern takedown episode i promise um and i think i go first you do you actually do today rather than open with the story i'm gonna jump right to it with my thing um i'm talking about hildefolk today of course that's right icelandic elves we all know them we're all sick of them (laughs) and i'm here to talk about them for just a minute or two what's the food connection you're loudly screaming well i'm glad you asked because it's not a fraught tie-in to what wound up being a nightmarishly hard prop to satisfy (laughs) uh yeah it's obviously because legend has it that the hulda folk enjoy snacks (laughs) and they sometimes create food that could trap you in their world if you eat it Ooh, and maybe also have tiny sex with them i guess uh we will learn more about this a tiny bit oh my uh anyway uh food connection has been made also basically whatever has to eat is essentially food based so (laughs) there it is there we go the connection Uh, is official yes so first a little more on the hulda folk themselves before i essentially just repeat what i just said about the food stuff (laughs) Um, I'll pass it off to Chelsea Martin, writing on the otherwise concerning website, Fairy Room, Oh, about the Huldefolk of Iceland. They are a group of elusive elves, goblins, and trolls, so I guess not a very uh, constraining bin, hmm. found in much of Icelandic folklore, said to live in an invisible dimension in houses built in the cracks of rocks, caves, and in the sides of cliffs. They can make themselves visible to humans, particularly on certain days of the year. Mm -hmm. The Hulda folk are particularly human-like in their personalities. Like the bird particular. They have to work for their livelihood, take part in drinking, and die like all mortals. (laughs) They are not known to be particularly good or evil. Really loves that word. (laughs) They are never malicious, but sometimes push their moral agenda harshly. For example, some stories tell of Hulda folk trying to seduce humans. Mm Mm-hmm punishing those who succumb to their seduction and rewarding those who are able to resist it. That's mixed signals. That is a confusing, yes, series of things. So, like I say, Huldefolk loves snacks. As Chelsea continues, and as we'll see in a minute, stories of Huldefolk are still prominent in Iceland today. 
They are a big part of holiday festivities, New Year's Eve, Christmas night, and Twelfth night, January 6th, as well as Midsummer night, January 7th. <laughs> On these holidays, it is customary to leave food and candles out for the de folk, which I guess a candle would be more like a giant torch. Some folks even set up small houses for them to live in, reminiscent of leprechaun traps children make for St. Patrick's Day. And I have to stop right here <laughs> to think about a few things. Number one, Jake, have you ever heard of a leprechaun trap? I'm just picturing a bear trap with some lucky charms in the middle of it. Exactly. And it's only maybe about the size of like a bottle cap or something. <laughs> I, was thinking, I was picturing a full-size bear trap. But <laughs> Holy shit. Oh my God. How big do you think leprechauns are? Oh, it's going to do the job. I oh. <laughs> You're trapping to kill, I guess. <laughs> I have heard of the legend of catching leprechauns to, you know, get their gold or what have you, or have a wish granted or something, but mm -hmm. man, anyway. And number two, leaving out snacks and festive things for the Hulda folk gets me to thinking, as I was preparing this dossier, is old Santa technically just a humongous lumbering form of Hulda folk? He's a right jolly old elf, as that one is, guy said. He is a right jolly old elf. And if so, concerningly, does this mean that the mom in I Saw Mommy Kissing Santa Claus song, <laughs> is she about to be punished by Santa for falling for his weird sexiness? Oh my God. Jake, answer this question. I know it's supposed to be the dad who gives a shit. I think uh, she probably got a bunch of coal or something. Why not? Um, hand in hand with weirdly punishing folks for falling for their wiles. To consume the food or drink offered by Hulda folk is to be trapped in their world for good. Sounds like a crossover you see with other fairy folk tale stuff around. You have preempted my next little chunk here, which oh. is that this is a recurrent theme in oh. many different tales beyond the Hulda folk mythology. Oh. Specifically, the consumption of a certain place's food is either the sole means by which a person is allowed to remain there or is a trap. That prevents them from leaving the place. Take it away, John Cruz, spelled K-R-U-S-E, don't get excited, writing on britishfairies.wordpress.com. <laughs> and I'll say it right now, don't know where John's rooting his sources, but also, you know, he's part of a contemporary generation of essentially lore keepers and storytellers, so take that as you will. According to John, eating or drinking within a fairy's realm is widely accepted to be a way of ensuring that you cannot escape back to your home. You mm -hmm. take fairy nature within yourself. And therefore, you must abstain from meals whilst visiting. Sometimes a wise friend might warn a person of the risks before they go to the land of fairy. Sometimes the help comes uh, from someone already there in that land. He refers to a Hertfordshire fairy tale of the Green Lady, a girl working as a servant for the Green a woman is warned by a fish in a well where she draws water not to eat the household's food. What is odd, though, is that the con the converse of this rule is that if you encounter fairy food and drink in the human world, refusing to eat it is the perilous thing. Hmm. So this is where I start to think the uh, Hulda folk are intentionally just inverting this rule to be fresh. Uh, John continues, Intriguingly, it seems that the outright refusal to accept the food, the offered food is what offends, not so much the refusal to eat it. And, however, this refusal to accept could lead to punishment or even death. Mm -hmm. He describes it as a record of an elderly Scottish woman named Nancy 
who had long had friendly dealings with her local fairies. She often met with them when she was out and about, and they gave her presents, such as rolls of fairy butter. Ooh. I know. It sounds really good. Uh, Nancy was evidently too respectable a Christian woman to actually eat this weird stuff. So she instead used this fairy butter for other household purposes. Don't get nasty. Um, yeah, so you can just accept the food. Don't eat it. John summarizes that the best advice to stay safe in a way a pro bono pander for us all, if you're here in this dimension and encounter a fairy, you can and probably should consume whatever they offer you without any qualms <laughs> does not matter what it is no they give you a thing just eat the thing she's like they're like here's a scroll consume the scroll <laughs> i will now hand it over to an abridgment of oliver wainwright's article in iceland respect the elves or else written for the guardian back in 2015 to showcase just how much the Huldefolk may still be around in Iceland today. Mm. Huddled together amid the jagged rocks of the, oh boy, here we go, <laughs> Galgahran Lava Field, a group of nervous onlookers wait with bated breath. Suddenly, there's a loud crack and a tumble of stones as a 50-ton boulder is wrenched from the ground, uh -huh. then slowly raised into the air and eased down nearby so delicately you'd think it was a priceless sculpture. Quote, I just hope they're happy in their new home, says Ranghilde Jansdottir. Oh boy. The elves really don't like being uprooted like this. Road builders are used to seeing their plans scuppered by the protected habitats of bats and newts or sites of special scientific interest and outstanding natural beauty. But in Iceland, there is another hindrance, the world of the Huldefolk as they call them, the hidden people. Ah, that's what it means, okay. The rock, known as Ufaigskirkja, has been at the center of an eight-year battle to stop a road being built through this 8,000-year-old landscape, a spectacularly barren and evocative terrain a little to the north of Reykjavik, which some believe is a site of supernatural forces. Eight-year battle to stop a road. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that is a fair amount. It is, all because of this rock. In a country of such desolate, stony expanses, haunted by howling winds, bubbling geysers, and fiery eruptions, it's not hard to see why more than half of the population entertains the possibility that a parallel community of elves, dwarves, and ghosts, I think it was goblins, might exist. A statistic repeated in tourist brochures since a landmark 1975 survey. But few, like Jon's daughter, claim to have a direct line to them, allowing her to hear their cries for help. The elves contacted me in 2012 and pleaded with me to protect their chapel, says the self-proclaimed seer who runs the Elf Garden, a fairy tale park of lava rocks near Reykjavik. The kind of sentence you want to get tattooed <laughs> on your yep. body. They told me the Ulfekskirka has been used as a beacon to guide people through the lava field for centuries, so they asked me to write the, mar uh, the mayor to halt the road. Jonsdottir teamed up with environmentalist group Friends of the Lava to campaign against the development. Now that's a group I want to belong to. Oh, you don't want to be an enemy of the lava. I was just going to say. <laughs> I feel like lava will win essentially 100% of hand-to-hand -hand combat. Yeah. Organizing a protest on behalf of the elves that saw her briefly arrested in 2013. But in the end, uh, she says, her hidden friends settled for a compromise. Quote, 
They moved their altar and pews out of the rock and have transferred the energy to its new location, she says calmly, (laughs) as if describing a neighbor moving house. The chapel had to be broken in two to be moved, so the elves have a lot of work to do to fix it up inside. But they seem content. It's always best not to upset them. Those who have done so in the past have paid the price. Speak to Icelandic construction workers and they'll repeat the history of mishaps that have befallen those who failed to heed elven warnings. These are so numerous that even non-believers would rather play it safe than risk incurring the wrath of the Hildefolk. In the 1970s, plans to move a rock out of the way of one major road went awry when a bulldozer inadvertently crushed a water pipe feeding a fish farm. Some 70,000 trout perished overnight. Jesus. I know. And there were so many other freakish accidents in the following days that the project was abandoned. One workman claims to have been stricken with bad luck ever since. Quote, There are many stories of machines breaking down and workers becoming ill when they interfere with elf rocks, says Brindis. Oh, boy. Bjorkvin's daughter, a writer and folklorist who teaches at the Icelandic Academy of Arts in Reykjavik. The elves are seen as friendly, beautiful creatures, but you have to respect them or they will take their revenge. Wow. And I suppose that's kind of it for today. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed it. I did. <laughs> Not really too much to sink my teeth into, ironically enough. Am I oh. right? But just a, just a fun bit of fun. A very bit of fun. A, yeah, a yes. very bit of fun. A very bit of fun. Love me some Icelandic uh, folklore. Didn't realize I was hungry for all of that today, but uh, my uh, my appetite is... Uh, I'm, I, it, it was, yeah. It was wet. Wet. Wetted. 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 <laughs> Wetted. <laughs> Put up the NC AAA. Hey. <laughs> there it goes. This is, of course, the machine we use with the pander function, the patron appreciation neural dive for evaluation of risk. That's, oh, yeah. uh, so we have this haunted computer. We use this program on it. We plug these cables into the backs of our brains. Not like this, right? Mouse from the Matrix, go on. <laughs> and uh, it allows us to tap into the dark ether and calculate what creature, cryptid, creepy crawly each of our Patreon patrons personally needs to be on the lookout for. Way more alliteration than I was prepared for just then. I, I was hoping you would just replace some of the letters of the other words with P's <laughs> to keep it going. <laughs> so, anyway, I guess we should do it. Enter the mind link. <laughs> okay. <laughs> First up, we are focusing on Sam Ainsworth of the UK. Sam. Be on the lookout for Eastern Cougar. Eastern Cougar. It's a subspecies of the North American Cougar. It was declared extinct by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in 2011. It's also since been removed from the endangered species list, which makes sense if it's gone. Uh, you potentially have nothing to look out for as it did. It did. Its last sighting was uh, in Maine in 1938. However, there have been sightings since then, suggesting they might not be entirely gone. You know what is totally nuts? A very good family friend of ours swears essentially on a Bible that they saw a cougar cross I-91 right near where we live. Wow. Uh, just a few years ago, in fact. They swear, like, cold that they saw this. Huh. However, cougars have incredibly large migratory ranges. Migratory, what am I saying? They, they roam, basically. 
Yeah. And uh, there's not an impossible chance that it was just a cougar from the west passing through on a very long excursion. That's right. So you may, I'm not sure what part of the UK you're in, perhaps Old England, but if you find yourself in New England, watch out for some cougars. <laughs> of the Easter variety. Right. And thank you so much for your support. We really appreciate it. Yes. Getting thank another, you very kindly. Another reading coming through here. Oh this my. time focusing on Lauren Paul. Lauren, watch out for... Sea, sea serpents, serpents. <laughs> as a group. <laughs> this page is a candidate for deletion. If you disagree, Lauren, with its deletion, please explain why at Category Talk, Candidates for Deletion, or improve the page and remove the delete tag. Oh, my God. And in the meantime, be on the lookout for literally every kind of sea serpent you could ever imagine. Mm-hmm. We're talking... Well, no. I guess you don't have to look out for Nessie. You don't have to look out for Champ. You don't have to look out for the sound of rumbling in the background. <laughs> you do need to look out for Yarmangander, which is a bad one. It has encircled the earth. Yeah. And, you know, look out for uh, different types of eels and fishes, just in case those might also be uh, sea serpents. And also, remember, you know, if, if all else fails, remember the saying, there are creatures that science refuses to recognize, but if our eyes see it, if our cameras capture it, does it exist? And thank you so much for your support on Patreon. If you would like to have your own cryptid creature, sea serpent, uh, calculated by the pattern function of this machine, then uh, all you gotta do is just be a patron at any level on our Patreon. There's three different levels, all with cool stuff. And at any level, you get to have your own pander situation happen. <laughs> Subscribe for your pander situation. You also automatically get access to monthly outtakes. Uh, oh, our whole baby. our whole Discord channel, or I mean, dis yeah, Discord channel, Discord channel, Discord server, Discord with all the channels that are in it, multiple channels, yeah, even more than three. Yep. At other tiers, you can become a Glugsuck member. We'll leave it at that. You get discounts on our smirch. At a different level, you get bonus minisodes. That's right. And it's all good stuff. And, uh, yeah, if you order in the next five minutes, you can also be uh, one of the recipients of these lovely beer glasses we have. They're super cool. Still still on their way out to everyone who is, uh, who is a patron now. If, once we get to 100 patrons, uh, you got to wait a year for one. That's the anniversary oh gift of that. But if you are one of the first 100 patrons, you get it immediately. Ooh, me like you, Dad. So let's go ahead and unplug this here from our uh, meringue. Yes. There you go. It feels much better. I also want to mention, since we haven't in a while, uh, we do have merch this show. So if you want to go to superduperstitions.com slash shop, you can also just get like a t-shirt or something. Get all swagged up. Yeah. That's another another way to support the show and just a cool thing to have. We have a lot of neat looking stuff and, uh, you know, buy it. <laughs> Come on, guys. Buy it. And thank you all, of course, for your support. We really appreciate it. It's yes. very fun. Today, I thought I'd dig into the general topic of how culture, our environment, and evolution have shaped human diets for millennia. Woo! And I'll, of course, do this in a segment called, Why Come People Always Eating That Stuff? So first up, dun, dun. cultural factors, because these may feel a little bit more familiar. Not everyone has a science background, as we kind of do. But uh, we've all experienced culture in some form at some point. Kind of hard to avoid. 
Uh, in particular, we're starting with the role of folklore in shaping cuisine. So here's a few mm. selections from a 2018 article from economictimes.indiatimes.com <sighs> written by Avantika Buyan, who says, If I had to close my eyes and recall one memorable story that I had read in my childhood, it would have to be The Monkey and the Crocodile from the Panchatantra. The image of the monkey living atop a lush rose apple tree is seared into my memory. Every time I read the story, I imagined what a rose apple would really taste like. It was only much later in life, while on a trip to Trichy, that I came across a vendor selling these. As I devoured the beautiful, bell-shaped, crisp, slightly sour fruits, it was a culmination of all those memories. Huh. So right from the jump, I bet that most, if not all, of our listeners can think of some story they heard or read as a kid that featured a food maybe one they'd never even tried, that the story made them badly crave. I know I was all about uh, Streganona's Pasta Pot. Definitely wanted that every time I read that. Very into that. I also just Hot Cross Buns. The concept of Hot Cross Buns, I really wanted that uh, from you know the title track of their eponymous album. Thomas the Tank Engine's Coal. <laughs> well, I had a different childhood, as we discussed before. Um yeah, there's been a lot of jokes made about uh, regarding the, the sharp discrepancy between the depiction in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe of Turkish Delight and the reality of that gelatinous, quote-unquote, treat. <laughs> uh, any other examples you can think of from your childhood of, of, of foods featured in stories that appealed? Hmm. Winnie the Pooh eat the honey? <laughs> Perfect. Uh, the article continues to list a number of other stories from various cultures with memorable food imagery. These tales with rich descriptions of dishes and ingredients allow us to time travel in two magical ways, she says. The green eggs? The green ham, less so. The green eggs, yes. Was it green ham, too? It was, for some wow. reason. Hmm. But anyway, these the stories allow us to time travel in two magical ways. They paint a vivid picture of culinary practices and eating cultures of those times and also take us back to the childhood moment when we heard those stories. They trigger food nostalgia as well as a strange craving for something we have only experienced verbally and yet mm. want intensely. Mm-hmm. It was a long time before I ever actually saw a hot cross bun, but even now that I know what they are, I still retain <laughs> my original image of them as delicious gooey cinnamon rolls. They are not that, but I, I still picture them as that and want them. Oh, man. This is slightly to the left of what you're talking about, but it is very much the same idea, I suppose. I'm forgetting the movie, which is unfortunate. There is an animated cartoon, typically is how it goes. Cartoons are animated. There's a scene where a rat who's pals with like the main character, I hope you can recall this just from <laughs> this one take here, Jake. He's like sharing out his snacks and he eats like this like schmear on top of a cracker. And I forget exactly what it was, but I remember this is perhaps actually the memory that is tapping into <laughs> what you're describing. <laughs> um, but I remember very vividly that scene and going like, gosh, I really want to eat whatever that is. Was it the movie The Abyss? Yes. That actually, I think that may have been it. There was a rat on the uh, submerged <laughs> vessel, research vessel. Uh, what? Oh, man. Hmm? Cartoon rats ranked by their food choices. <laughs> this should have been the segment. Oh, shit. Yes. Templeton from Charlotte's Web, baby. Oh, wow. 
I really don't remember the uh, the movie of that at all. I don't either. <laughs> this guy looks so much more grotesque than I had recalled. <laughs> he looks like a straight up villain. Oh God! <laughs> He's also shaped like a canteen. Or like a, yeah. a bike seat. Or maybe or, like a, a classic like water bladder. Yes. And apparently he just ate fucking trash in that movie. So I don't know what the fuck I was thinking about. Well. <laughs> Wait a minute. Hold up. I'm not done. <laughs> Derailing the shit out of your segment. <laughs> I have to see what he was eating. Yes. This is the scene. This okay. is it. It's happening. All right. Watching it together. He, uh. Doesn't look as menacing in this shot as he did in the other picture. Oh, yeah, the other one, he was a very different shape than he is. This is a normal rat shape. I think the shot we saw of him was post this scene. I can't okay. actually, for whatever reason, I cannot hear this. Yeah, I think that um, you didn't share with sound, maybe, or maybe just that your thing oh, doesn't always God. play sound. Charlotte's Web, 1973. Look at him go. Oh, God, he's just eating like garbage. Why was I into this? I remember seeing the scene being like, damn. Well, it's all actually good. food, but the scraps thereof. He's now building a sandwich out of garbage. <laughs> it's so humongous. It's about to fall. He's eating all of it. He runs into a watermelon, eats the entire inside of it. And the and outside the, of it. And the husk. <laughs> Classic typewriter corn moment. Uh-huh. I promise I'm almost done. I have to see this part. There's definitely a part coming up. I, there's got to be this part. He's coming oh. closer to the shape that we saw him in earlier. There it is. Yeah, he ate a banana, and that seemed to be what really put him over oh the edge of the banana. He's now the shape and consistency of an overfilled water balloon. <laughs> yep. And he has been crushed by all of the food that he is so happy about. This is not what I was thinking. I have to go back to this rat's thing. Carry on, Jake. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to carry on here. <laughs> Thank you for entertaining my sure. <laughs> horrifying digression. Anyway, the article continues on to explain how certain verses from Sangam literature, uh, it's a bunch of poetry written between 300 BC and 300 AD, or we call it BCE and, uh, and CE, have descriptions of local cuisine and culture. And the uh, Mongol Kabyas, a ton of 15th to 18th century Bengali narrative poetry, has local histories and food memories. Uh, Narayan Deb's Padma Puranj from the 15th century also has an elaborate list of ingredients and dishes cooked by one of the characters. So there are a lot of examples, even just in India alone from this one article, uh, frequently involving legendary origins of staple dishes or morals that hinge on a character's knowing the better or correct way to prepare a food. So really wanting to hammer home, this is what we eat, this is how it's supposed to be done, and there are consequences to doing it wrong. It's, it's interesting. We can find plenty right. of other instances around the world where food takes center stage in stories in this way. Uh, Ari Burke makes the case in an essay entitled The Lore of Simple Things that common stories from much of human civilization all point to just three specific foods as being the key to community survival. Any guesses what those are? Three specific foods key to human survival. I'll tell you, they're not Dungeons and Dragons, Heavy Metal, or Beer. <laughs> Fish... Rice and fish, fish again. again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so this, I like how it was written in the essay. It says, uh, so here is the lore of the basics. Three foods that remain effective indicators of the land's condition. If these are unspoiled and readily available, all with the land and the people living on it as well. 
Here are three foods ancient and primal. One given, one found, one formed. Milk, mm. honey, and bread. Ah. Yeah. So milk isn't something our bodies evolved to digest into adulthood, which is why lactose intolerance is actually the rule, not the exception. Um, but when early civilizations started to domesticate animals and some people were able to drink the milk successfully, boy, howdy, were there positive nutrition consequences. That stuff is deliberately jam-packed with nutrients and stuff to help a growing uh, little baby. If an adult human can consume that and get those same nutrients, it's pretty good when there aren't a lot of nutrients to go around. So communities started milking goats and cows and reindeer and surviving better because of it. Uh, likewise, honey is a great source of energy for any animal that has no qualms about fighting bees. <laughs> and it basically can't spoil, so it would have been very special to people gathering it. Bread is kind of a miracle discovery all its own that could easily fill a whole segment to describe it. Uh, so true. Instead, I will strongly encourage everyone to watch the Michael Pollan four-part Netflix documentary, Cooked, uh, based on his book of the same name. Fucking rules and makes food just seem that much more amazing and wonderful. I may have recommended it on the show before. I just think it's really fun to watch. It's also it's very fun to watch while eating. Um, so it's hard to watch while <laughs> hungry. There you go. But anyway, just some quick examples of the basics given above. Israel in the Bible is the land of milk and honey. Milk is a gift of Allah. Uh, I've got examples in the Odyssey and ancient Egypt of importance to do with milk. Honey is widely considered sacred and a food of enlightenment. Bread is just all over the damn place in stories. Uh, this same essay includes... Other than like, you know, there's different stuff. Like you got loaves and fishes and stuff. Like, like in the Bible, you have um, different cool bread stuff. Bread being the body of Christ, that kind of thing. Also, in the essay, mentions examples of bread's importance via tales from the Osa, which I really only included in here because I want to try and pronounce it. I don't think I succeeded, but <laughs> people from South Africa, Southern Africa, the Osa, I think. Lauren, how close am I? <laughs> I can't, I, that's, that consonant sound is tough. Um, what'd you say? It is It is hard. Um, anyway, a lot of foods are talked up for their importance. It's cool. From here, I want to pivot into the science side of things, but also link to a uh, 2014 post on the personal blog of fantasy author Terry Windling, Terry Windling, I'm not sure how you say her name, which takes a fun dive into lots more folk significance of food and fairy tales. Actually, when you first brought up the idea of the, uh, is it Hildefolk? Hildefolk, yeah. Hildefolk. Um, she kind of talked a little bit about just generally the idea of, of leaving food out as offerings. I was like, oh, neat. So when you there brought it up, go. oh, hey, I actually think I kind of know about this. Look at that. <laughs> um, but before I move on to the science stuff, do you have any other thoughts you want to add to all this stuff? Golly gee. Not in particular. It's sort of a, it's a certain topic you could almost speak in many directions and at length on. So I will, I will simply say this is great and I am enjoying carrying Oh, good. On. I'm glad to hear it. Uh, so next up is human evolution and food choice. Here we go. So an arguably needlessly densely written 2001 research paper from Evolution and Human Behavior. This is why carrots are getting sexier. Is this right? <laughs> That's exactly right. You read my thing when I had this the shared screen <laughs> on. Uh, the article lays out the fact that cultural transmission of important information, as we discussed mere seconds ago, would have had huge effects on survival for humans across the millennia. Right. The paper puts this into terms like, quote, information acquisition as selection pressure and narrative design and content as clues to narrative function. But the point is more straightforward nice. than that. It's just that it really behooved our ancestors to pass on knowledge about food. Now, a lot of what I'm getting at seems kind of obvious. I mean, food is clearly important. We need it to not die. 
So it's not a surprise that oral tradition would include plenty of mentions of this enormous part of being alive. However, it's not just that people talked about food a lot. It's that the most effective communication of important information about this food resulted in the most successful communities. Huh. So the argument is basically that there was a selective pressure for telling good stories. So cool. Uh, in evolutionary terms, just as a, a recap for, for uh, long-time listeners, evolutionary terms, selective pressure refers to conditions in an organism's environment that killed fewer of one group compared to another group due to some difference in traits between them or at least affected which group had more offspring. That's generally what's meant by natural selection. Just, uh, you know, you don't die as much and so you pass on more of your genes. So a quickie example could be like very, very cold winters kill more animals that have less fur than ones that have more fur. Yeah, so then you end up having the ones with more fur have more offspring and then the population of those grows and you just have a lot more things with more fur. Um, and that's what evolution is. That's there all you it go. is. You have been taught. <laughs> that's it. Um, so in this in this instance, your elders could tell you stuff like, eat this, it's good for you, or those berries are poison. But is that going to stick in a younger kid's mind as effectively as a good story might? Here we go. Especially if that story makes food sound wicked, goddamn appealing. <laughs> that kind of stuff is going to really stick. I mean, you... We're really taken by a rat eating a bunch of garbage. Like and you were super stoked about matches. that. <laughs> so if it's something that just like if a kid is into it enough, they're gonna remember it forever. <laughs> but everything I've covered so far really only accounts for culture and folklore of food that has already been decided upon. Mm. As we're talking about existing food habits being passed down across generations. So this may be how and why cuisine traditions persist. Where do they come from to begin with? Hmm. So for that, I want to dig back into an article I'm fairly sure I've referenced on the show before, but I'm going to do it again. Uh, talking about a 1999 study in the journal Bioscience called, you ready for it? Darwinian Gastronomy, subtitle, Why We Use Spices, sub-subtitle, Spices Taste Good Because They're Good For Us. Ha! Huh. That's very cute. It's, it's cute, but like scientists cannot help themselves but to be as cutesy as possible their title, and they are bad at titles. The worst should not titles. have a double colon. No, there's yeah, it's a subtitle. So, it's a medical one. concern and a <laughs> structural issue in senses or yeah. titles. <laughs> if you learn nothing else from us, is that scientists are the worst at titles. Just look at the show itself. The long and short of this article isn't just that our tastes evolve to match what is best for us nutritionally, though that is definitely true. I mentioned earlier, for example, that honey is a great source of easy energy. Uh, sweet things like honey and sugar in general, tastes good to us because carbohydrates offer a quick burst of energy, which would be super important at a time when you're a simple little ape whose next meal is an open question. Uh, similarly, we evolved to be repelled by the smell of decomposing flesh because eating that would make us sick as hell. But lots of the flavors we like are so likable because of the benefits those food sources gave us across evolutionary time. What's so interesting about this particular article is the case they make for why certain cuisines use certain spices. Hmm. So instead of a macroevolution question of pre-human ancestors eating stuff and surviving better, etc., this is a much more recent phenomenon for Homo sapiens because it has to do with how we cook and season our food, hmm. which would be a, a much more comparatively recent phenomenon. The super cool and at least partly empirically testable argument is that foods closer to the equator are spicier. Foods farther from the equator are less so, and this is largely due to how easily food can spoil in those different climates. Ah. 
But it's not just because adding a bunch of seasoning can cover up the taste of food that has started to turn, though this may have been a partial factor depending on how bad the food had gotten. Like that can help make it easier to to stomach and uh, and so you then have more food available longer. But it's also because a number of spices used in dishes around the world literally stop bacteria from growing. Fascinating. Yeah. I knew I knew this broadly, but do you have uh, some of those spices in mind? Yeah, I can cover a couple of them. I mean, the main one here, I say like loading up a recipe with a metric fuck ton of garlic is typically a great idea just because it's really tasty. But garlic will also kill microbes and make it more difficult for that dish to spoil. Garlic. Wow. Actually, so I learned about all this initially in um, in college. We did a big experiment where we got to choose from a whole list of like a shitload of different spices and test them out and see which ones inhibited. We could also choose from a bunch of different kinds of bacteria. We had like two options each for gram positive or gram negative bacteria types to use. Very cool. And then we got to see how uh, how well those different spices inhibited bacterial growth. I seem to recall, like, people would always try, like, the, the hottest spices and stuff, and that didn't always necessarily have the effect. Like, wasabi doesn't do as much as you think it'll do. Interesting. But garlic kills the fuck out of microbes, like, really, really well. <laughs> it's really cool. Wow. One of the things they did cover in here, too, is they looked at it just comparatively what, uh, how many different countries have, like, how many different general spices. Like, they res- uh, analyzed a bunch of recipes from a d- bunch of different places, looked at the number of spices per recipe, just generally, like, okay, which places have more spices used i think the country with the average most number is india at 9.3 spices per recipe wow which would explain why it's really fucking good food yeah Uh, second most i think is ethiopia at Mm, 7.5 and then you get all the way to poland which has 0.3 so yeah definitely a colder kind of place by comparison 0.3 but a lot you see a lot of garlic a lot of onion a lot of uh, then some chilies Black pepper, they call it pepper, just black pepper, uh, it's coriander, which could also refer to cilantro. The most common ones you see are onion, pepper, chilies, garlic, those keep repeating. When you get more kind of into Europe, you get more parsley. The ones that actually have the best effect on bacteria inhibited, uh, garlic does a great job. Onion, allspice, and oregano also have a pretty decent effect on it as well. Mm. Thyme, cinnamon, tarragon, cumin, so you keep going down the line, these are less and less effective. Mm-hmm. Um, but all of the ones they have listed here, even just some stuff like cumin, cloves, lemongrass, bay leaf, chilies, rosemary, marjoram, mustard, caraway, mint, sage, fennel, coriander. I'm going to go until I hit 50%. Dill, nutmeg, and that all those kill at least 50% of bacteria present. Wow. Everything under that is 50% or less. So they tested a lot of them, and they all had a pretty good effect on killing bacteria. That's amazing. Is, yeah, it's really neat. I mean, it tastes really good. But uh, it also makes the food safer to eat. Do you know if anyone's looked at our detection of tastiness with these, our, our, our sensation that they taste good to us? Has anyone looked at how much that's tied to their antibacterial performance? That I'm not sure. Um, I, I brought up like sugar as a thing because like that's an evolutionary thing that we have tested. It goes back a lot further in time. Um, this stuff... I feel like it would be a more recent thing, kind of like in the last maybe 10, 20,000 years. Sure. So yeah, I, good point. I am not sure if that has been tested. I would have to imagine people have looked into it since, right. um, but I would have to believe that it at least has, people have acquired a taste for stuff like this that would keep them safer. So although right. I don't have any uh, data to back it up, I, I bet there's something there. What did I have? Where am I? I see. Oh, I'll just say, yeah, I, uh, garlic, cool. I 
think this might be why when I make too much spinach artichoke dip, I can leave it in the fridge kind of indefinitely and it doesn't seem to go bad for months. <laughs> I have so much garlic in it until I eventually either have another social function where I can use more of it or else just use it as an ingredient in a different dish. But <laughs> if I do say so myself, it's a pretty good uh, spinach artichoke dip. I think I made it for mm. Friendsgiving a couple times. Well, I remember you just made the one big batch, right? And you've just been eating it ever since. You brought a, a portion of it to the <laughs> Friendsgiving and now yes. I guess it's still going. It's uh, yeah, it's the gift that keeps on giving. Uh, spices as microbial agents would have all kinds of implications for not just avoiding food poisoning, but also storing food in climates where you can't just freeze stuff or dry it out. So when you're down in the warmer areas, you can't do that. If you get up into the Arctic Circle, you can store meat in indefinitely in ice and stuff. It works out really well. Or you can do like drying stuff with salt. Not for much uh, longer. <laughs> that's right. You can't do that now. Add to that the regional availability of particular plants that spices come from, and you start to find super cool localized cuisines in different parts of the world based on how that affected uh, survival and the food and stuff that they were trying to eat. It's the kind of neat stuff. Very neat. Not particularly relevant to this point, but that varying availability of spices led to the spice trade and lots of colonial horrors and wars and all kinds of other shit throughout history. And yet, it didn't necessarily even result in good food for the people taking all those <laughs> spices. So, quick quiz. What goes into a pie in medieval England? Butter. <laughs> I'm sorry, no. the answer I was looking for is yes. <laughs> Everything goes into a pie. <laughs> you hear like you eat that, what's the little nursery rhyme thing? It's talking about four and 20 blackbirds baked in a pie. That's because oh, yeah. if you're making a pie, you put absolutely everything you can in there you put uh any game so any number of different types of birds you put them all in there any number of different types of like organ parts too absolutely so much ghoulish yeah and then whatever spice happens to be available that like your uh rich household has gotten so i recall the only episode i've ever watched this show lords and ladles i was about to say lords and ladles i was about to bring it up you took it away from me god damn sorry this is uh, I, only, show. I watched it only the one time with you. That actually was the night after the only episode we ever recorded on edibles. <laughs> you, your listeners, go back and listen, see if you can figure out which closely. one that was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and yes, it was only one, despite what you may think. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> but after we uh, had, you made us dinner and we we watched Lords and Ladles, and they just yeah, cranked a bunch of game and stuff, and then just a fuckload of, of uh, cinnamon. That was the spice to have, was cinnamon. So like, we're going to yep. season this with several pounds of cinnamon because <laughs> the pie back then was massive absolutely gigantic and the crust was like a structural thing less than a, it wasn't so much something you eat as just a way to keep it all in contain i don't know for for folks out there this is a show where three chefs from the uk they go around to different uh like you know historic locations manners if you know what have you around Britain is that mm-hmm. fair to say around yeah. Britain, and they cook a historic recipe or a s- series of dishes from a recipe book, and uh, often they are forced to amend these recipes because <laughs> yes. they're just so ghoulish. They try their best to like stick to it, and then they serve it to the owner of the place, and everyone just has a nice time. It's just for fun and learning and cute. Highly recommended if you like history, food, and the British accent <laughs> it gives kind of some vibe large. to like great british bake-off but there's no competition it's just yeah. i'm just kind of trying to see if they can pull off this feat of like cooking this old old recipe they're all and, very f- charming and fun too and uh yeah the recipes were terrible 
horrifying. But anyway, we've, we've talked about how culture has steered our relationships with food and the scientific origin for some of those traditions. So now I want to conclude with a fun combination of those two factors. Here we and go. And that is in the form of food taboos. Ooh. So in other words, cultural traditions dictating which foods were to be avoided and the very practical reasons that those traditions might have come to be in the first place. For this part, I'll be leaning on the extremely apt uh, article. It's called Food Taboos, Their Origins and Purposes. <laughs> from a 2009 issue of the Journal of Ethnobiology and Ethnomedicine. It says, um, most religions declare certain food items fit and others unfit for human consumption. Dietary rules and regulations may govern particular phases of the human life cycle and may be associated with special events such as menstrual period, pregnancy, childbirth, lactation, and in traditional societies, preparation for the hunt, battle, wedding, funeral, etc. Hmm. On the surface, many food taboos seem to make no sense at all, but they have a long history, so it stands to reason that there would be an explanation somewhere back at the beginning of all that for why they have, actually have that rule. So an ecological or medical basis is apparent for many, including some that are seen as religious or spiritual in origin. But some of these taboos can also help utilizing a resource more efficiently or can lead to the protection of a resource. Whatever the case, traditions like these can also help with group adhesion, which is a term for people finding a sense of belonging. So another quick quiz. Let's try and list some food taboos. What can you think of? Which culture are we talking? Any. Any ones you can think of. Foods that you shouldn't eat. Well, I th- if I'm not mistaken, in India, you're not meant to eat cow. That's one, or yes. Or beef of any kind. Right. In the States, uh, we never eat any kind of food that you would think of as your typical house pets. Also true, yes. There are a few different cultures, too, where they um, there are animals that you consider a pet that you wouldn't eat the pet, but you can give it to someone else, and they can eat it if they want to. That's fine. It's like, oh, if it's not huh. yours anymore, then... Changes its like status. Yeah, it's like if you didn't like care about it enough to hold on to it, and they decide to take it and they want to eat it, that, that's fine. So you, you can do that. So there's yeah, interesting kind of standards can change. I know shellfish are prohibited in many, or at least in some religious practices. Yeah. So yeah, in Judaism, you have the uh, the set of rules called the kashrut, which um, for things you can't be eating. Actually, Islam has similar stuff. You have haram right. is forbidden, halal is permitted. Right. And a lot of crossover between those pork products are one of the things that are pork, not right. in either of those cases. Cool thing about that, so like, um, yeah, a lot of places where you say, oh, you can't eat this, can't eat this, but the reason behind that is kind of cool. So like, say pork, for example, if pork goes bad, it can be a lot of like terrible foodborne illnesses from that. So there could have been cases back along where someone got sick from that and say, hey, let's uh, let's not eat that. How about? Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and then just like, say, okay, well, just it's a rule now. But also, um, I think I read in one of these that that uh, pigs in that part of the Middle East at the time would have been a little harder to come by. Huh. So. It was just uh, not a practical thing. It would have been expensive to have. So it's like, hey, don't eat that. It's, we don't have a lot of that. So, you know, don't right. eat it. And uh, so that's kind of a cool, just like, oh, that it became a religious rule later on, but it started out as just a practical thing. Right. Shellfish, I think, is also true in both of those religions, or at least certainly in Judaism, right? Right. And there's a lot of shellfish allergies out there. Some of the different things in this paper, they talked about how a lot of origins could be, hey, there were allergic reactions to certain foods. So without doing a ton of like process of elimination, they say, hey, sometimes when people eat these things, they like get really sick or possibly die. Let's not eat that stuff anymore. Right. And no one's allowed to. So we'll just be safe about it. We're not going to eat that stuff. So oftentimes the things that come up are uh, just pure practicality or safety. It's kind of neat. It is cool. Can you think of what is the uh, the mother of all 
taboo foods. What one animal is least uh, acceptable to eat around the world? One a single animal or group of animals? One single animal species. Whoa. Most people seem to agree it's weird to eat. Hmm. Listeners, write in now. Let's see. Is it a mammal? It is. And everyone agrees it's weird to eat this. Almost everyone. Pretty widely. Like a rat? Nope. Wait, let me think. Weird to eat this. Or you might say taboo to eat this particular thing. Yeah, yeah. I don't it's think a, it's... It's a game animal. Oh. I will give you a better hint. It's the most dangerous of those animals. Oh, <laughs> the hippopotamus. <laughs> Just kidding. Of course it is man himself. That's right. So cannibalism is seen as a real weird thing to do. And yeah. it at first it's like, oh yeah, of course you want to eat people, but then you think about it more deeply, it's like, well, if someone like Wait, you had a double died, check? Well I mean like if you think <laughs> into human evolution, like back before when just like survival was you just gotta do what you gotta do, how would it have come up so quickly that we oh we don't do that? And uh, it's kinda neat in different cultures where different things are true. There uh, was a uh, a particular culture in um, Papua New Guinea. I was going to say Papua New Guinea. Yeah, where there, and I I got I remember reading like learning about this in biology class back along, and I, I was reading about this yesterday and getting conflicting reports of what may have actually been the case. Right. Where part of their funeral rites involved cannibalism of like the deceased family member. Huh. The thought being that oh you know this person then lives on in you forever right. until you die right. and then you get so they just like, the person's never really gone so it it makes sense the person right. you don't and kill by extension them to eat. all of your ancestors in yeah a way. they're always always around so kind of a cool thought there yeah. and it's not like you're murdering someone to kill, to eat them it's just like okay after they're gone they're not gonna go to waste we're gonna keep them around forever but right. it turns out that um, a lot of this kind of thing was studied by Europeans who are like visiting and. It seemed to be a thing that wasn't actually necessarily. They saw that happening and decided it must have been a religious thing, but it seems maybe more like it was like a times of extreme hardship Oof. at the time. Like, okay, well, this person has died. Let's eat this person because we don't have a lot of choice. And Yikes. so it wasn't something they. I mean, they do some kind of ritual um, stuff with the body after the fact, but in this case, they also were consuming part of it too. So that, high risk of kuru. Yes, that is the name of the disease. It comes from what's it called, Wyatt? Uh, well. From consuming the brain. If I, yeah. Oh, prion. Right. Prion, prion. I never heard to say prions. prion. Prion. It's a little. Yes. Uh, it's, it's a little weird protein thing, right? It's a little a chunk of protein, and it specifically tends to be in brains or neural tissue. And so, if you eat that part, you can get this disease that fucks you up. Very uh, famous, more recent example, more widespread example of a prion disease is mad cow disease. Ah, there you go. There's a possibility that. People were eating people more often back in the day. I mean, you see with chimpanzees, they do it a fair amount of the time. They're very violent. Oh, horribly violent. Right, they'll kill and then eat each other. But um, it may be that back along, prion diseases maybe kind of dissuaded people from doing that as often. Or else it could have just been the cake. Don't want to eat you. I knew you. <laughs> but yeah, right. Hard to say. <laughs> but uh, in general, yeah, there's a lot of different kind of rules regulating how people eat stuff, what they eat. And uh, what they don't eat, and there's cool reasons behind all of it, and that is what I got for today's. I loved it. Well, I'm glad to hear it. Really took food-based thing from a bizarre and unhelpful start to a highly informative <laughs> and interesting finish. <laughs> and we, I mean, this episode. If you're if you're a regular listener, this episode is late as always, 
and it's because I had to keep pushing off doing it because I was taking so long to prep this while also trying to do work. And I was taking so long to prep it because I had such a hard time figuring out what the fuck to do. <laughs> it was a so, tough one. It was, but it was a fun one to figure out. Oh, yeah. A fun, a fun challenge. Don't do too much preparation, but I'm going to put it on you. But first, and <laughs> for Phantoms most, I must mention the groovy and growing brewery in Western Massachusetts, which incorporates Big Tank, Smoke Monster, Amplifier, Acoustics, <laughs> Botany, Moisture, and Yeast, and Time to make a particular brand of fermented refreshment. That is right. If you are in the New England area and want to buy a beer, consider buying Four Phantoms. Four Phantoms. Here's some more Four Phantoms news for any of our local listeners, at least through the end of this month. This Friday, the 28th, uh, so if this is out on Friday and you are listening, Four Phantoms will be hosting another viewing party of the show Critical Role. Mm Mm-hmm. Which, again, I have not seen, but is, as I understand, a show in which a group of professional voice actors improvises a D&D campaign. I failed to mention last time that if you would like to go to this and other events of its kind, please do register to reserve your spot online. You could do this from their events page mm-hmm. on 4Phantoms website, 4Phantoms.net slash events. That's F-O-U-R-P-H-A-N-T-O-M-S dot N-E-T forward slash events cool otherwise if you're free and just want some truly great beer brewed locally swing on by and let them know that we sent you and that's pretty much that for now try for phantoms beer please do and thank you for phantoms thank you very much for phantoms and thank thank all of you you for listening listening. please uh, consider rating and reviewing the show on your podcast app especially if it's apple podcast even though that's among the worst podcast apps oh yes right after stitcher uh, also, just spread the word about the show. Spread Booster that word around. Signal. Tell people about it. If you like it, yeah. tell people to listen to it. Um, yeah. By the time this comes out, I will have. Uh, I will if it comes out on Friday. I'll be the evening this comes out, hanging out with Audrey and Mike, um, some of the Whoop. main evangelizers of this show to their yes. everyone they know. Um, super excited about that. Next week's episode is going to be about. Uh, weird objects. Now, it doesn't necessarily have to be a cursed object. We have done some of those. We also found that it's hard to get cursed stuff. Something just weird, like we did, you know, the, uh, those weird whistles I got, and, like, the, that hammer that was supposed to be, like, prehistoric hammer inside of a rock. Oh, yeah. That's so it could right, be that's any, right. something weird, weird about objects. an object. Okay, weird object. Al's little brother. <laughs> and we'll see you in the goodbye. Bye. Oh, 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 oh